All right. Well, before we get the show started, there is one topic. I thought this is probably going to be one of the top news stories in the Linux Action Show on Sunday, but maybe we kick it around the virtual lug first. Did you guys see the story that broke this morning that uh, Factory for OpenSUSE is moving to a full-fledged rolling release uh, d- distro? Yeah. Full-on kind of rolling distro now. What do you guys think? That'd be interesting. Meh. Meh. says the first person. Says the canonical guy, we're in a year, you know Ubuntu's going to be doing the yeah. same thing. <laughs> yeah. I, here's what I wonder. Is you know how they announced that this next release was kind of just going to be a maintenance release while they worked on the back-end stuff? I'm wondering if this was a one-two punch all along. Like, well, they knew they were going to do this, and so they had a lot of replumbing to do, and so they were working on this. And, and the way they're going to do this now is it's kind of an interesting system where there's still going to be some automated testing that goes in before it lands. And instead of having to do, like, big release candidates and, and stable beta snapshots before a big release, is essentially they're just going to firm this thing up as a release gets closer and then just carve it off and say, here you go. And I, I can see this so, replacing Tumblr. So exactly like we're doing with Ubuntu. <laughs> yeah. Well, only you don't make the the daily, the rolling version of it to, like uh, like a sanctioned, uh, what would you guys call it? A respin? Like, uh, you know, like... From a, yeah, we do, we do on the phone. This is exactly what we do on right, the phone. Right, right, right. Interesting. That will come to the desktop in the future. So yeah, how does sure. it work? So on, on Ubuntu, there's not, like on Ubuntu phone, there's just new builds all the time. There's not like this is RC1, RC2. It's like, nope, this is just the latest build. And is every build then QA tested? Yeah, automated testing on desktops and devices in the lab, like physical phones in the lab. Uh, probably much the same way as OpenSUSE are doing it. And uh, and then you, you bless one that passes yeah, 100% clear testing. Well, here's what they said. In the old development model, an army of packagers would shoot new packages and updates to factory, with a relatively small team of factory maintainers taking care of the integration process of all those packages. This took a long time to stabilize and rip for release. In the new rolling release development model, package submissions cannot go to factory directly. First, they have to prove to be functional and trustworthy in a staging project. Staging projects are projects in our open build service where groups of submissions are collected, reviewed, compiled, and tested with open QA. After the packages survive the staging project, they go directly into factory. So they're using open build service and open QA to bang on it first, and then that system then, I guess, releases it into factory. So when you're doing, on your rolling open SUSE release when you're doing a daily update you're theoretically pulling down updates that the open qa process has already banged on uh I, this to me and what's interesting i don't know if you guys have picked this up i got a couple of links in the uh, show notes like the muck and a few other places are really 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 pushing a, this as a comparison to arch they'll say well in arch they do it this way or in a response to arch do you guys think this is really open susa trying to respond to arch well, there's no way they can because they still don't have the aur no, it's just it's them responding to uh, the way that application developers are doing this. If you look at the way that Chrome and Firefox are are pushing out updates to their applications, they they have a very rapid release cycle, and um, you can you can very quickly get the the very latest crack on your machine <laughs> by subscribing to a particular particular channel, be yeah. it like the beta channel or Canary or whatever. And I don't think Arch matters one iota to OpenSUSE. Well, no, I, think I don't know. Well, I don't, I don't know, because uh, the open build service has um, supported Arch packaging for a, a good while now. So they've embraced the Arch community some time ago. 
And I, I think Arch has claimed a lot of longer-term power Linux users now. But I do wonder how many of them are simply there because, like Popey says, they want the freshest crack. But if you could give them super fresh crack without some of the Arch hassle or, you know, Arch um, intimidation that some people What's still see. What's the Arch hassle? Well, the setup, right, and not having things pre-configured for you. So, like, the yeah, nice thing... Yeah, only once. You only do that once, don't you? Once you've done that, you get the daily crack every day. Well, who you you're, telling? You're a winner. Well, you're telling me. I know that. But I'm just thinking from people outside that no, maybe... I know, but you're kind of implying that, that, that you have to go through some magical hoops to get to that goal. It's only once, early on, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah, I should have clarified. I, I don't think that OpenSUSE's decision to do this matters one i i don't think arch was a deciding factor to be honest yeah probably not i, I don't think i so. suspect it was more to do with fedora spinning off their core and desktop next and all the rest well, of it initiatives i mean kind of like popey was getting to too though doesn't this just make more sense from a development standpoint shouldn't this be how it's yeah. done oh absolutely uh, yeah. but it's kind of funny because that uh testing spot spot is the new factory the and factory is the new tumbleweed. Yeah, is the yeah. way I see it. It does seem like I think so. And tumbleweed, I guess, kind of goes into like it's still being used, but it's not as directly involved anymore. I, I'm kind of confused yeah. on that. Well, Greg Crow Hartman did post right. something yes. in our it, it, uh, kind of a response to it. Yeah, he at this point doesn't know what's going to happen to tumbleweed as a result of this, but it's not like a huge thing for him anymore. It kind of sounds like he's just been nursing it along for the last couple of months. He says, "Yeah, so yeah, that's that's the gist I got from that." Mm-hmm. If he consolidates them both into one, then less work for everyone and more benefit for everyone else. Yeah, I, I also yeah. you know, Seuss has a kick-ass system manager, and also they've got Snapper, that better for FS snapshot tool right, built right. right into the system manager. So right. they've got a lot of maybe, cool maybe stuff, but their the PR kind of sucks. And you know, the other thing that's interesting on the opposite of they have the Evergreen, which is essentially their LTS. So now they've got Rolling. I guess they've got something in the middle, the stable versions that they'll release still, uh, which will have, which will have support Windows. And then they've got the evergreen LTS style releases. So now there's the whole gambit there that they're spanning. I, I really think this is interesting because we were just talking. What does OpenSUSE really have to offer the Linux community? And this might, I, I think we're starting to see that come to fruition. That system a bit. manager. Maybe. They really yeah. need to step up the PR, though. You know, get their yeah. team going and like reporting and shit. If they put the name out of OpenSUSE a little bit more, so then we're not just talking about it as if it's some, you know, Loner in the corner. Is that might actually be good. Here's why. I think the exact opposite. Because like it seems like everybody's always talking about open source, but nobody actually uses it. Well, I wonder if this isn't sort of isn't this sort of a tuck and roll to make them like to sort of adapt to the changing way things are done in Linux and say, okay, we're we we want to kind of pivot and become a great distribution for those of you who want to really be working on the edge of open source software. You want a system that's been well engineered and that some real thought has gone into that has some tools to make your daily Linux driving use a little bit easier, like you know things like Yast and actual graphical update management utilities. Because let's remember, I mean, yes, we're we've been talking about Arch, but on Arch everything's command line. Some people don't like that. That sometimes is enough for some people. They just want a graphical front end to some of these tools. Plus, you got a big company behind it, which makes some people feel a little bit better. So now you can say, okay, I'm a developer. I'd like to have cutting-edge software, but maybe have it be a little more stable and tested, assuming that they can keep things fresh and tested. Uh, and I want something that's well-designed. And that could be, people could be looking around going, well, OpenSUSE could be the way to go. And I think this is why it is more of a response to Fedora than anything else. So then maybe this is really what they're bringing to the table. 
I think it's a response to the world. Everybody wants stuff faster. They have to do something to keep their market share up. Yeah. Do you think that maybe the perception about Open Zoos and its marketing and its message is regional? Because certainly in Europe, Open Zoos is a big, big thing. Everyone I knows bet, about yeah. Open Zoos. That message gets through quite loud and clear. Well, even and here maybe in, Seattle, in other parts of the world. Even Sorry, here in Seattle, on. they have an office. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it is somewhat regional. Um, but then again, I mean, what we were talking about in the context of last week is if you wanted, not necessarily like in. Like it's great, you know. Open Sousa does really, obviously, has markets. It does really well. And what we were kind of making the case was, is if you were going to sort of introduce a brand new game-changing technology to Linux, like System D or some standard desktop application container technology across the board, or a universal package format, something crazy pie in the sky, right? If you were going to introduce something like that, could it be the Open Sousa group that would be able to introduce it and have it take off? And I would argue we've seen some things they've done that are really cool, like like OBS or the gallery that you would think other that were built for other distributions to take advantage of that are, you know, like they're they're even paying the bill for it and still it really hasn't gone outside of their ecosystem. That's where we were talking about relevancy before, and I don't know if this changes that position or not. The problem with OpenSUSE is that they have a ton of awesome ideas and they create all these, these like the OBS and the studio. All these things are just like concept wise, they're awesome, but they never f- fully finish them and never polish them. So there's a well, ton of breakage with the OBS. I mean, it's so much of a pain to use the OBS. That's why people just ignore it. Hmm. I wonder if, too, by being rolling and faster and more nimble like this, if they introduce a cool technology. Uh, that maybe it gets faster adoption because people can get their hands on it quicker and start playing with it sooner. Maybe. Also, getting packages into the to the factory is a lot easier as well. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show. The rocks a beard and knows how to use it. My name is Chris. My name is Matt. I just, uh, you'll get the beard reference later on. I'm just going to leave that out there. Matt, we got a big show today because we got back from OSCON and we're like, well, we have a huge Linux action show and we still have more stuff to play. So we have some exclusive interviews from the floor of OSCON coming up, as well as our takeaway from the trip, some interesting trends we observed, and uh, also a plea, if you will. Plus, we'll recap the trip itself. And then uh, later on in the show, we got a little stuff that's coming up that we could use the community's input on. So if you are a Crux user or have looked at the Crux distribution, stay tuned towards the end of the show. we got a special call-out for you guys. Matt, big show today. Big show. Big show. Uh, so uh, let's bring in the Mumble team so that way they can uh, assemble and join us. Mumble Room, prepare your minds for the feedback because last week we dared to boldly venture into productivity land. I had no idea. You know what people use Linux for? Getting work done, turns out. That's right. Not video games. <laughs> no. No, not all silly video games. We like to get things done, yeah. son. Yeah, so when we talked on the uh, topic of productivity, we apparently we sparked some feedback. So I'm going to cover just a couple of them because I don't want to, like, the people who don't care about productivity stuff under Linux, I don't want them to tune out. So we got two. Two I wanted to start with. Our first email uh, this week, uh, it came in uh, in regards to my Thunderbird quest, which I didn't get, like, a great answer but this one was a really great extension. I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm looking, if you have great extensions to make Thunderbird really rock, I'd love to hear about it. Like, I got some of the basics, like uh, I have one that lets me see the mail agent that people use to send me emails so I know when they're on Outlook. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> and I've also got, uh, you know, like, the, of course, the GPG encryption for Thunderbird and stuff like that. But Mark wrote in with an interesting one. It's called Conversation Threads. And he says, I highly recommend the Thunderbird Conversations extension. It displays email as a chronological thread rather than a single message, even if the emails themselves are spread across folders, like, you know, between inbox and sent, which is pretty cool, Matt. I seem to remember this. I, as soon as you said conversation thread, I instantly yep. flashed back to my Thunderbird days. Yes, it is an awesome application. I have, uh, it does not care where the email is. It works great. That's nice. I like that it goes across the inbox there. I have a link to it in the show notes if you're a Thunderbird user and watch it. Cause I actually I put this one on there. The one thing that it does that I don't like, and I, you could probably turn this off, but I haven't looked into it, is it also changes the way Thunderbird displays your email so it looks like Gmail. And the reason I'm yeah. using Thunderbird is to get away from the way Gmail displays right. something. So, yeah. yeah, there's a little bit of getting used to. If I remember correctly, it, it does like little mini panes uh, kind of overlapping, and you can collapse yes. and expand and whatnot. Right. Kind of and like I, I was okay with it. I was okay yeah. with it. Yeah. It, Although the benefit, the benefit is that you can also use Enigmail for like encryption and yes. whatnot that yes. Gmail can't do. Yes. So there's yes. plenty of. And some people like the way Gmail does it, right? So that's then it's yeah. a win-win if you do. I use it with Thunderbird when I'm using Thunderbird when I just feel like it. And, yeah, it's amazing. It just organizes it. It gets rid of that huge, thick header bar. Yes, and, that's true. Yeah. That is nice. Uh, Matt and I were scratching our heads on Sunday. One of the I, I think, Matt, you mentioned Nitro Tasks. I meant to mention Wonder Tasks. Yes. Uh, we ah, also yes. mentioned To-Do.Text for uh, task managers under Linux. Uh, Randy writes in with a really great suggestion. He says, love the show. This is my first time commenting on last 323. You had listener asking about a task manager application. As someone who is always searching for the perfect task manager, this caught my attention. So I have a suggestion to offer. Of course, here he says, a selection always depends on your particular requirements. That's his standard disclaimer. But here's what he wants from a task manager. And I think we'll probably all agree with this. Cross-platform, so you can use it on any OS, work or home, synchronized across multiple machines, Specific task management features I like, such as subtasks, oh, that's nice, uh, allows me to print out my task list and scribble on it during the day. Oh, that's nice, too. Ooh, and accessible yeah. from an Android device. All right, so this, is, this sounds perfect. He says, the solution I found and I'm pretty ha happy using is Task Unifier Pro. Task Unifier, one word, Pro. As a task manager, which is very full-featured, gives me the kind of interface I want. It syncs with to -doodle, to Doodle, which gives me cross-machine syncing access on Android and as a backup. I know someone in the audience might find this helpful. He says, I was able to finally settle down on one task manager after a long search. Keep up the great work, Randy. So there you go. It's called Task Unifier Pro. I haven't tried it out yet, but that list sounds killer. Oh, it sounds like a uh, – because I've been kind of looking for something like that. That might actually uh, scratch my itch. Yeah, yeah, and you can find it at taskunifier.com. Uh, it looks like – here's a – see. Uh, it looks like maybe it's a Java app, actually, potentially. Huh. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. I don't. Know. Yeah, it works for Mac, Windows, and Linux. Task Unifier. Yeah, it's any operating system supported by Java. So there you go. Hmm. Mac I won't Linux. judge it based on the Java thing. I'm not a big Java guy, but I would check it out. Yeah, you had me until Java. Yeah, I mean there is that, but you know I already I just what I just put Java. Oh, um, I got a new game. Uh, I got a new game that requires Java. So now I've got Java on my computer. So uh, yeah, I already got Java. Cool, Chris, Minecraft isn't new. No, not Minecraft. It's uh, <laughs> it's like uh, uh, Fallen Sky, I think, is the game. Have you guys seen this? It's on Steam right now. Uh, you guys follow Gaming on Linux. Remember, we had uh, the one the uh, the main writer from Gaming on Linux on the show a few a few weeks Liam. back. Uh, he did. Uh, let me go find it. He did a. He did a. He's been doing a really interesting kind of like. From time to time, he's been emailing popular Linux game developers and getting them to actually release their Linux sales numbers to him. 
And oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And it's really, um, it's not awesome. It's really not oh, awesome. Yeah. So, Usually isn't. No. <laughs> so he just, he just posted uh, part three on uh, GamingOnLinux.com. And uh, the game that I picked up after this list that I realized I didn't have, uh, he's got a whole bunch on here. And uh, some of them are pretty good. Linux, like uh, Spy Chameleon, uh, 5% Linux installs. Uh, Rust... Rust uh, says that uh, 0.4 and 0, 1% in July. So Rust sales are 1% in July. The fall represents 4.5 sales for Steam. And when you and, and Humble, if you, if you uh, factor all those in. Flashout 2, 16.1% of Steam sales are Linux. Well, that's not bad. 16% is almost noticeable. Uh, Quest of Dungeons, 1% Linux, 5% Mac, 94% Windows. Far Sky, oh, that was the game I got. 0.89% Linux. Uh, and that, that surprised me because Far Sky is actually a pretty cool looking game where you go underwater and you get to explore an underwater world and find like cool stuff. Uh, and it's got pretty good graphics too and there's like underwater facilities. I don't know, I guess it takes place in the future. I just got it. But it, it requires Java. But you have to survive underwater and find food, find items find money you have to grow stuff in like uh, hibernation chambers under the water obviously there's fish you have to battle with so for the kid like the boy was like "Ooh, dad i want that game i was like yeah <laughs> we could nice. he's only he's got less than one percent linux sales let's boost that up a little bit right so yeah, i went no out kidding. i i think it would be an obvious game but maybe it's just the fact that people aren't aware of it enough on the linux platform that could yeah be that's it. what i was wondering because after i got yeah. it i'm like yeah, why is this not more popular to be honest with you, because it just gets cooler and cooler as you play it too. So it's called Far Sky, and uh, it's let's see, it's it's maybe this is why I don't know. It's fifteen bucks on Steam. I mean, that's a yeah. little I guess that might be a little high for some folks, but I feel like we've all gotten a little out of whack of what our game pricing is. It's been out since April, so if you want to check it out, you can maybe boosters. Anyways, and then the, and go check out Gaming on Linux where they have have more stats for Linux sales. It's it's getting better. Uh, it, we're not competitive yet with the Mac, and I would say the Mac isn't quite on par with what the sales need to be at. So I continue to buy, and I just like to remind folks, too, that if you do if you do want to buy Steam games, you should do it under Linux because then it counts always, towards Linux. Always, always. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't ever buy under Windows because at that point you're really sending not only mixed messages, you're sending the wrong message. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think that's pretty silly. I mean, $15 for a game that's going to get you hours of entertainment. How I don't, I don't get why people aren't willing to fork that over. I mean... Have they gotten so spoiled by like the humble bundle and all these free to plays that they're not willing to fork out fifteen dollars? Really, people? I think so. And app stores have skewed our perspective too. I, I think it's app stores, and I also think it's a matter of something that the folks on the Windows platform will do often is they reach out to folks that do let's plays. Um, if you're a, if you're a game developer and you're not doing that, you're an idiot. I'm sorry. Yeah. You, I mean, it's like you are really screwing yourself on that one because yeah. at the end of the day, that's how you get your word out for maximum cheapness. They got to learn how to market to yeah. the Linux community because they've never really had to reach out to us before and spread well, the word. Do. And yep. you know. Um, I, I also I, I look I look at it this way too. I think that if if maybe it's one of these things where people start to uh, it's going to take a long time to kind of warm over the crowd because it's been it's there's a culture built up around it now. And even when we talk about it on this show, people hate it. Even though it's like one of the biggest things to happen to Linux desktop, people hate it when we talk about games. Uh, and we'll see what happens with it. Um, keep watching it. I, I hope their sales improve. I really do because I'd love to see SteamOS really take off. And maybe it will once SteamOS itself actually uh, actually ships in 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 more homes maybe like because you, know, you can get steam os now but yes. you have to roll it yourself 
Hey, I want to talk about something huge that's happening on the GTK side that we have lambasted them for right here on this very show because, you know, Guadix's going on. And uh, so, of course, we got to get some gnome news. And I think some people are going to be happy about this. Be uh, curious to get Wimpy's reaction, too. First, I want to tell you about an awesome opportunity. Head over to Linux Academy dot com slash unplugged right now go over to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged because they got a special promo going just for you guys it's the summer of learning and you know there's sunshine out there and you need a good excuse to avoid that sunshine absolutely right i mean who wants to get stuck actually out in the nice weather not me my friends linuxacademy.com slash unplugged but on a serious note this is a genuine resource for you to go and take your linux skills up to the next level they have so many really awesome courses you can see why you'd want to subscribe to this for example, you could just take the basic Linux level one exam 101 type stuff, but then you can move up through the stack. All, everything up to introductions to Android developments, they, they span the entire gamut. Plus, they have seven plus Linux distributions you get to choose from, and the courseware then is automatically adjusted based on the distro that you pick. And they have downloadable comprehensive study guides, audio and video that you can watch and learn and listen to while you're, say, driving or sitting at the computer doing the courseware. They have a ton of self-paced labs, which is really cool because then later on you can go back and quiz yourself and see what you've picked up. This is for me. I have found a great resource to kind of see what do I have an intuit for? What can I kind of pick up? What's in my wheelhouse? Do I have an interest in this particular technology? Do I want to learn Python? These kinds of questions are so easy to be answered just by going to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and get that 33% discount. That's only $50. Per quarter. The other really cool thing is they're doubling down on AWS infrastructure courses as well. So if you need to do a little Linux and AWS stuff, they have scenario-based training you can go through and actually implement something. So you walk away with an actual usable product, a skill set you could apply to a job, something you could put on a resume, something that you can learn yourself to see how that system works. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplug to get that nice deal. So let me get this straight. If I'm in a hard place and it's like, look, I'm looking at gaining some new skills and I've got three months to kill and I can pop 50 bucks forward, I get three months, 50 bucks, and I get a new marketable skill. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And there's a community there that helps like people go out and get testing and gives them support and answers. And you know, it kind of keeps you going because there's people that genuinely care. They're also doing a lot of live stream events now so you can interact with the folks that are doing the teaching. So there's a good back and forth there. It's an amazing resource, Matt. And what's really cool is it's essentially three Linux advocates that were like, you know, we need to have, we have between all of us here, we've got web development skills, we've got years of training experience, we can build this right, and we know exactly what other Linux users would want from a service like this. And I think that's really remarkable, because what you walk away from is a new understanding of perhaps how a different distribution does something, how to deploy something. I mean, it is genuine, tangible benefits that you get to walk away from with a service like this. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Go take advantage of the summer of learning, and you get to keep all of the courseware, the study material, all of that stuff. They have tests where you can check yourself how far you've gotten. It's such a cool service, and I'm so happy they're a sponsor. Okay. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. And thanks to everybody who supports the show by visiting our sponsors. Okay, I teased it a little bit. Uh, you guys might have saw this. Uh, it was a blog post, blogs.gnome.org. Client-side decorations is getting a, a revisit, and they've posted some screenshots now of different scenarios where you could have the GTK software detect if you are in a client-side decoration environment and automatically display those big header bars, or if you're in an environment perhaps that isn't friendly to client-side decorations, it'll drop them now and go back to a more traditional look kind of on the fly. So this is sort of them saying, 
all right, so the client-side decorations thing wasn't that well-received. We still think it's a good idea. We'll implement it in certain scenarios, and we'll automatically remove it in other scenarios. And if you're watching the video version, I'm showing you some screenshots right now. It kind of, it's kind of a... Kind of like what we've seen with GNOME itself, where they make these dramatic changes. There's a ton of blowback, and then you start seeing things like classic mode and extensions that kind of bring back functionality. Now you're seeing this. People were really responding like, whoa, 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 whoa. If GTK is going off crazy like this, I don't know if I want to be using this. This seems like it's something just for GNOME. And now this seems to be them coming back and saying, all right, guys. Well, look, no, we still want you to use this in other environments. Wimpy, I, you're, a, you're a mate guy, a mate guy. You're using GTK in all kinds of different environments. Is this good news in your perspective? It is, because it's going to save us a ton of work. Really? How so? Well, at the moment, we've had to put some patches in to kind of adapt uh, client-side decorations, because there are ways to override them at a system level, but they can still be overridden uh, at the application level. So if you look at the new um, GEDIT uh, client-side decorations, right. I mean, actually, it's quite, it's quite nifty the way they've integrated the menus into the title bars there. Mm -hmm. But um, you can't override those at a system level because it's kind of intrinsic to the way the application is designed to work now. Um, but this approach, it does um, mute the critics and it does make GTK a platform that anyone can use. And, and it certainly goes some way to silencing the critics saying that um, GTK is sort of becoming a, a libgnome uh, library. Popey, did we just jump on them too soon? Were they going to do this all along when we just didn't let White out to see the final version? Maybe. Maybe they've uh, seen what uh, Apple are doing with Yosemite and uh, they're following up and very quickly <laughs> posting what, what they've been planning all along, I'm sure. You think so? So why not come out from the very beginning and say, we're working on this, but for non-GNOME 3 environments, we're going to have an answer for you soon. Why not say that from the beginning? Uh, they're under no obligation to do that. It's an open source project. You know, there's no, there's no reason why, you know, you stamping your feet and demanding that they tell you what their future plans are means that they have to do that. But doesn't, know, in, this, in this... doesn't this go to what we so often see in the community where there's this abrasive sort of way of presenting the future from the GNOME project and then the community reacts and says, oh, once again, GNOME is shoving something down our throats and doesn't care what we have to say. And there's this, like, this visceral reaction that you see on, on Reddit and, and, and on, on, on discussion forums all over the web. And it's kind of like if they would just come out and maybe communicate slightly differently and say our long-term plan is to solve something for everyone, I do wonder if maybe those initial reactions wouldn't be so much, oh, GNOME is once again cramming something down our throats. I think if GNOME spent all their time responding to Reddit and the rest of the peanut gallery, <laughs> then they wouldn't actually get anything done. Fair I point. Think, I think they're doing the right thing here. Yeah, and they definitely are. I mean, it sounds like it's a good change, regardless if they're going to do it all along or if this isn't about face. This seems like a great change. It's, uh, it's one of these things, too, where I look at it and I go, this is perfect because I really genuinely have some GTK applications that I'm going to use regardless of what desktop I'm on. And this has been a problem. And you, we've seen some of those horrible screenshots of like Archiver on Cinnamon before Cinnamon supported client-side decorations. Really much better. Well, they had to start somewhere as well. True. Yeah, I suppose so. I, I suppose they could have done this from the beginning, but yeah, I suppose so. Uh, all right. In Even if it wasn't their idea, I mean, like if, there, if it wasn't their long-term solution and then, um, you know, they meant to just do what they did and then people had backlash, isn't it? kind of a good sign that the known project is showing they're listening and they're actually trying to solve the problem that they are you know being informed about 
Yeah, that's a great point. Is it does seem like either way they're listening more. Um, I have to, a, to, I, go ahead. I have a high hopes be, for Gnome. Sorry, to to be fair to the Gnome developers, they've communicated quite well what their intentions were uh, with regards to client side decorations with the development community through through their blogs and through their documentation effort. And although it wasn't um, received with open arms, let's say through some projects that are dependent on GTK. The, the developers that were affected by these decisions didn't um, throw their toys out the pram and didn't get too worked up about it. It was quite a pragmatic um, reception. Right. And certainly from Marte's point of view, in addition to adapting to the system overrides, we also abstracted some of the um, toolkit to change the way that, um, that uh, GTK3 works to suit better the style that Marte works with. But most of the backlash and vitriol that you see um, isn't from people that know what they're talking about. Well, they... I don't know if I agree. Ah. I think I think uh, I think our favorite KWin developer probably was the most vocal about it, and he's very technical and very experienced in in that area. I, I agree that there are technical commentators that have a point of view, but the overwhelming um, feedback comes from people that will read something that Martin has posted mm-hmm. uh, or, or other people that know what they're talking about and then uh, repeat bites of that about the place as if they're expert on the subject and don't really know what they're, what they're um, espousing at all. And it comes down to uh, something we were, we were kind of uh, discussing on the live stream on Sunday. Is there's a bit of sometimes what happens is drive-by technologists that yes. can come in and kind of fire shots over this. But I I kind of looking back at this now, uh, there was it was there was certain people in the community that did very loudly condemn it. And what we don't know now is if it was that vocal pushback that I mean, for before I get on Martin for going to the blog and going to Google Plus and, and sort of ramping up sort of an anti client side decoration campaign, perhaps it was that very effort that sort of convinced the known project to make these changes. We don't know. Uh, well, when. When uh, GTK 3.11, which was one of the the development cycle, it was one of the point releases for 3.11, I know that a couple, I think three of the developers from the Marte project were talking to some of the developers from GNOME and explaining some of the the difficulties we're seeing and and how it it could be better implemented. Uh, And we we already got a feeling that they were like, yeah, Yeah. okay, we're going to address this in a later release and we're 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 going to change the way that this is uh, applied. So, you know, from our point of view, we kind of knew that that wasn't a step down as such, but a a change of direction to be more accommodating to other projects. Yeah. And I also I also noted when they originally started talking about the whole client side decoration thing, it was couched with a lot of this is in development. This is a work in progress. This is something we're moving towards. What do you think about us putting the buttons here? You know, there wasn't like it wasn't. It wasn't an ironclad, this is how it will be designed. It was, this is what we're thinking about. And I remember specifically, like, blog posts were like, here's a mock-up of how we could do it. And it was very, I actually think it is an indication of how the GNOME project has changed, not just with client-side decorations, but really starting with about GNOME 3.10. The way they have been communicating their future changes, to me, is much more open. It's much easier to, like, sort of grok some of the new stuff coming towards GNOME. And I think they're firing a lot better on the communication cylinders now. And I think it's this definitely is, improving. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is another another thing, another bump in that direction, another another trend bump, you could call it. Definitely been my experience. It's good news. It's good news I for everybody, so. and also it's good news because uh, Arch and Gnome are going to take over Linux in a couple of years. So I mean, 
What? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Back that truck All up. Right. All right. Hey, we have some uh, OSCON stuff to follow up on. Right. Got some more goodies from OSCON. And uh, both uh, Eric and Noah went down there with me. So I, I have a few photos I wanted to show. So if you're watching the video version, you can grab, uh, you can just watch that. Or I will have um, the link to the photo album in the show notes. So don't worry, we're not going to do like a big slideshow. But I just want to talk a little bit about our trip and uh, say uh, you know, right off the top, a really special thank you to Noah. Noah went all out for this trip. Not only did he and his family fly out here a week before they needed to be out here for a wedding they were going to, but they also rented an SUV so that way they could haul our butts around. Uh, Noah FedExed out uh, camera gear and microphones like overnight. Uh, so uh, this is uh, Noah and I driving down. Noah took me down to the train station where, we, where uh, Eric and I uh, went to the, uh, what is it, a union station, Eric? That is King Street Station in Seattle. King, so we went down to King Street Station, which was really nice. Riding the train is so much more chill than riding on the plane because you just walk up. Like there's a there's a gal at the front. She's like, well, who, "What? Where are you going?" And I tell her where I'm going. <laughs> All right, go sit over there. And then they they announce over a horrible speaker when it's time to get on the train. And then you just walk up to the train and get on after like they like stamp a thing and you go past a guy. So uh, it's pretty casual because you can just, you know, it's like, I don't know, you just like walk right up and get on there. The train was nice, too. Uh, I, I think this is an underrated way to travel. And plus, you get a nice view the whole way you go. Eric got the, uh, the uh, seat view both ways. Both oh, ways. Oh, no kidding. Both yeah, ways, I don't know really. how I pulled that off. Did you get any good pictures? You know, I did. I should probably post those, but um, I got some great views. Like, the train goes right under the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, which is a huge suspension bridge in uh, Washington State. And it's I got some really neat pictures of that. I got some pictures like what uh, Chris is showing on the live stream right now, the St. John's Bridge in going over the yeah, Willamette River. It, it turns Portland. out Eric is like a walking Wikipedia of road trivia. <laughs> like he's, yeah, got, yeah. he's got like highway and bridge trivia out the wazoo. That it's ridiculous. Awesome. Which makes him... When I was picking you up from the train station. What about that? What about... Uh, what about? So here's Eric and I at the train station where we had an opportunity to spend about an hour and 45 minutes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, it wasn't really Noah's fault. So, I mean, to give Noah credit. So Eric and I, we get on a train, right? And we're all being super, like, cash. Train has Wi-Fi the whole way down there, so that's really nice and easy. It's kind of spotty, but you get Wi-Fi. Meanwhile, Noah and the family unbeknownst to us are, are going through like a special like welcome to washington hell trip where like the mall they go to gets evacuated and all they want to do is just eat and pee so then noah drives the whole family from seattle down to portland oregon while eric and i are on a train then he goes miles an hour yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he goes to pick us up and google maps sends him like 25 miles in the wrong direction Oh, no. Well, see, that's your yeah. first problem. You weren't using Waze. This is the night before OSCON, right? So, and yeah, so man. Noah's like, Noah, finally, after a while, like, I'm like, at first, I didn't want to, I didn't want to bug him because I wasn't sure, yeah. like, you know, he's got the whole family. Maybe, you know, like, there's some stuff to settle before he leaves, uh, you know. So I'm like, so about 45 minutes go by, and I'm like, so how's it going? And he, like, writes me back. He's like, just so you know, man, this is nowhere near the hotel. I'm like, uh-oh, uh, dude, it's like seven <laughs> minutes from the hotel. What are you talking about? So then we start like sending each other map screenshots back and forth to compare notes <laughs> all over Viber. Oh, my God. Noah got a nice tour of the Portland, Oregon area. Let's well, I think he was way. driving too fast to see most of it, to be honest with you. Oh, true, true. Yeah. When he got well, there. He, when he, he picked us up, he came to a screeching halt. Yeah. So it was like. When he got there, the, the vehicle smelled like burnt rubber because he'd. Uh, <laughs> The brakes on that vehicle work very well. That's all. <laughs> and 
Yeah. Yeah. So here's what's what's funny. What put us behind the curve to begin with was we wanted Indian food, and we went to the Indian food that was supposed to be. Well, you probably did. Well, yeah. (laughs) Well, no, my Uh, wife likes it too. But so we go to this. We go to go to this restaurant, and the restaurant is closed. So we go down to this mall, which is another like ten blocks in, in in a different direction. And yeah, somebody pulled the fire alarm, so they evacuated the mall. The funny thing was on Sunday when we got back into Seattle, we went back to eat uh, to eat Indian food again, and we found an Indian restaurant literally like three blocks from where that mall was. Oh, oh wow, go figure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we stayed at the Red Lion Hotel, and uh, which was nice because it was only it was you know five minutes walking uh, distance from the convention center. Not a great hotel. You can see here. This is my curtain. This looked like something that Sound of Music would make dresses out of. They were like just. <laughs> It was like uh, really distracting, uh, but you know what was what was chiefly important. Oscon day one. I figure I'm in Linus Torvalds territory. It's safe uh-huh. to rock socks and sandals. I proudly rocked socks and sandals <laughs> well, at Oscon. It's super comfortable. It's the way to go. And then we got some food. There's uh, Noah rocking his Google Glass and uh, Eric taking phone calls there at the uh, food table, making business deals, of course. Uh, oh, yeah. And we saw one of the coolest things at OSCON was the hardware alley. And I got some more of that in a little bit. But uh, this here is uh, – Noah, do you remember the details of the split keyboard where the guy had handwritten all of the info? On the, and they felt so yeah. good. Yeah. So essentially it's a customizable keyboard. So you can take the keys and you can arrange them any which way you want. Um, oh. Do you have a picture of the metal one? I so that think... board, those keys, those keys, what he's no. showing on the on the wooden, they're not stuck in that pattern. Like you can slide those keys any which way you want. There's not, it, in the picture, it almost looks like there's there's specific spots where they have to go, but they, yeah. you can put them anywhere on the board. Yeah, I and mean, somehow they work. Yeah, they're really neat and they feel really good. Um, we saw some custom like little arm Game Boy like uh, machines. The guy was super excited about making them. Uh, Arduino. Yeah, yeah. We saw the open source. I think I have. I in a little bit. I have the open source laptop, and of course, uh, Eric and Noah. So there's Noah's camera, and there's Eric. They're getting set up because we had an interview with Chris DeBona. I think that was one of our highlights of the trip was getting to chat with Chris DeBona. And oh, uh, yeah. it's funny, man, because when you walk up to these places, the way the conversation goes is, "Who are you? Who are you with?" If they don't recognize you, how yeah. many subscribers do you have? Yeah. And, and then you give that, them the answer, it. and either you pass the test or you fail the test. And uh, and thankfully, we passed the test. Uh, yeah, and, that happened a lot. Yeah, and here's a here's a great example. Like uh, Zen, you know, the uh, virtualizer, they had a booth, and they had – well, funny enough, they had like an iMac mounted in the booth, and then they had like Linux stuff being displayed on the iMac. Uh, but they had a pretty cool <laughs> booth to sit right. at. And Linode was there uh, rocking uh, some cloud hosting information. Um, and then we saw like all kinds of funny like makeshift things like there was this was a four node cluster that was built out of these little machines. Uh, Red Hat had a pretty good booth. We stopped. We'll have a we'll have a chat with one of them here in just a minute. Uh, there's me rocking the Oscon boy. Towards the mid mid of the first day, I was starting to feel a little ragged because it's a lot of walking around. It's hot. Uh, but then you know we started to see the fun side of Oscon, like this giant chess set that they have on the floor there. There was a ping pong table, and then we got to chat with uh, Karen from the Software Freedom Conservancy, which was exciting because uh, she's really like she's passionate. So that got us all fired up again. And then we walked around. We saw the open source laptop. This is such a cool. I mean, oh, I think yeah. Noah was this maybe your favorite stop that we did. Uh, which the hardware laptop? Yeah, the hardware yeah. laptop with the stenographer's uh, keyboard that you you wanted to switch to over Dvorak. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, was, it, was really, it was really cool. I, I'm not going to deny that, but I have to say my favorite booth, which I don't even think we have pictures of, was the Orange of S. Uh, the booth. Oh, right. That, yeah. that, that, the alphabetized yeah. social that that. Uh, Everyone that got was, a shirt that right was now. Cool. We don't have any shirt. We don't have any pictures from that. But they're working on a really cool open source. Uh, 
post to all social networks at once, kind of like your Hootsuites out there, but totally open source and free that you can self-host. So if you're a company and you, you have to manage a social media account, like a lot of distros do and things like that, they have essentially just go to their GitHub repo, check it out, and you throw it up on your own server, and now you can, you can manage multiple social networks with this one open source suite. And they also do other stuff, like a parallel file system and all kinds of other stuff, but that was what we were really excited about. I'm going to look at oh, yeah. the uh, file system, too. It looks actually pretty cool. There's another shot of the uh, open-source laptop. Really neat. I just love a wood laptop. I mean, it's, it's no MacBook Air or Ultra Pro, uh, but it's, you know, it's pretty sweet. And the guy was really passionate talking about the different hardware and stuff. Noah got a great interview with uh, Simon St. Laurent. We're going to have that here in just a minute. He is a senior editor at O'Reilly and also one of the chairmen of OSCON. And then Noah drove us back. I think this is uh, almost it right here. Here's the – oh, this was cool. I really liked this at the uh, LibreOffice booth up on the projector. They had in a, in a LibreOffice document projected up on the screen. Guess what? This morning the U.K. government announced that they're standardizing on ODF, the same, more, so, the same format LibreOffice uses natively. That was a pretty fun thing to be there to see them celebrate that when that was announced. So They were so excited about that. I cannot tell you. I mean, we had like a five-minute conversation before I drug you guys over so we could get an interview of them. Yeah. So it, it was well, just, and, they were so excited about and it. And while Noah was talking to the LibreOffice folks, I was talking to one of the guys from the uh, software conservancy, the, the, uh, one of the developers of PHPMyAdmin. And I was like, man, I love your project. Thank you for making it easy for my clients to back up their SQL databases. Like, you've enabled <laughs> them to use MySQL. Thank you. That's kind of neat. That's just who you bump into while you're there. Uh, and we just start chatting up. It's like, yeah, I love the Linux Action Show. <laughs> How cool is that? Nice. You know, yeah. That's so also, awesome. yeah, I mean, also, Michael Dexter of the Portland Linux Unix yep. group, yep. he was pointing us in the right direction for yeah. people to interview. I just wanted to give him props, too, know, if he's nice. listening. Such a, such a nice guy. It's always fun. He's always at these oh, events yeah. that I go to, and it's so great to bump into him because it's like seeing an old friend. Uh, and it was also he also got us to hook up when we did the live stream of the uh, Linus Torvalds chat at the Portland Linux users group. Uh, so let's get to – we interviewed um, uh, uh, Ruth, I think her name was, from Pydora. And, uh, you know, this is a really fascinating project to see Fedora get into the whole ARM space, get into – to get into making a serious distribution for the Raspberry Pi. They're writing books about it now. They're really getting – they're getting really serious about it. So I want to talk about that. But first, let's thank our next sponsor on the Linux Unplugged show, and that's the awesome folks over at Ting. Linux.ting.com. Linux.ting.com will get you $25 off your first device if you've already got a device. Well, good news. You can bring that over to Ting. Check their BYOD page. And they'll just give you a $25 credit. Everywhere I went when I was in Portland, I was rocking LTE coverage. And even more to the point, which is really unique, is while I was on the floor at OSCON, I was able to take pictures and send them back to Angela, who's sitting back at JBHQ and then posting, like, the guys are on the floor interviewing Chris DeBona. The guys are on the floor interviewing Chris, Christian Hellman. Like, all of that was happening while I was on the floor. And to actually be able to get LTE or sometimes 3G, depending on the – because it's just crazy in these conventions. I had to give mad props to Ting. Linux.ting.com. Go find out why Ting is awesome. Here are the highlights. No contract. So no early termination fee. And you only pay a flat $6 per month. No data caps. No minutes you have to use up or don't get to take advantage of. It's just what you use every single month. Add it up. $6 for the line. And then whatever the tax man's got to take. To give yourself a little taste, go over to Linux.ting.com and click on that savings calculator. Now, for purposes of demonstration, enter in exactly what you actually use not what you pay for right because what you, one of the hardest things about switching to ting is you have to kind of change the way you think about wireless 
you don't have to buy like a certain set amount of minutes that you might use and a certain set amount of data that you may or may not use or text messages. You only pay for what you use. And it, it's, it's, if you think about the way the mobile industry should have been structured, this is it. What Ting has done is hit the reset button. And it makes so much more sense once you kind of change the way you think about things. So I've plugged in actual usage here. So minutes used per month, let's say 400. That's kind of, that'd be very generous for me, but let's say it's 400. Uh, text messages, 500. I'd say that's probably about right. Megabytes used. Let's say this month I'm at, you know, I'm about three gigs. So I'll just put three gigs in there. Now, before I switched to Ting, my bill would have easily been 149.99 before taxes. 149.99 US. If I click calculate savings, I can see that if I would switch to Ting over a two-year period, I would save $1,919. Linux.ting.com. Go try out the savings calculator. Put your info in there and see how much you would save and see why switching to Ting might just make a lot of sense for you. Plus, no hold customer service means when you got a problem, they're going to solve it for you. Their awesome dashboard also means that if you want to take care of it yourself, you can because their dashboard makes sense and yet it's extremely powerful. Linux.ting.com. And a really big thank you to Ting for sponsoring Linux Unplugged. Oh, love it. It was, it was awesome having LTE down there. Okay, so uh, let's cover some of our first interviews. This, one's, this first one's just something fun that didn't quite fit into the show. But one of my favorite booths at OSCON was the GitHub booth. Yeah, the GitHub booth. Because they had an actual DJ. And they weren't like crazy with the music. It was it wasn't too loud, but it was good. Like you knew when you were near the GitHub booth because they had music going. So I chatted with one of the guys from GitHub, and I said, "Okay, why GitHub and music?" So I notice here that you have a very handsome-looking DJ booth over here. Uh, is GitHub going to be rocking music all day? Uh, all day. So uh, tonight during the booth crawl, you'll find us. We're basically blowing the place out, and we'll throughout the breaks and whatnot today. Yeah. That's awesome. So why GitHub and music? Um, we have a lot of creative people at GitHub. You know, that's one of the attributes we hire for. So um, music is one of the parts of our culture. We uh, have a lot of code-based parties um, around the city and whatnot. So yeah. And it was. It was pretty cool. Uh, it was pretty neat to have. Uh, it's the just a different take on it. Every every booth that's major tries to do something interesting so we had to stop by the red hat booth and uh, ruth was there uh, and ruth has talked to noah in the past in fact ruth and noah are like best buds like they just started catching how you doing ruth oh i'm good noah like they just started catching up like old pals uh so noah talked to ruth about pydora and all of those goodies at oscon we're here walking around at at uh, oscon 2014 here in portland oregon and we ran into ruth from the red hat project how are you ruth i'm great how are you doing all right. Now, Ruth, I had the opportunity to hear you a couple months ago talk about um, the Raspberry Pi and all the interesting things. I think you had a, you had a suit that you had, you, had, you had made, you know, and it was all powered by a Raspberry Pi. Now, I understand that there are some major changes that have come out hardware-wise on the Raspberry Pi. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, just last week they released the Model B Plus, uh, and the reason it's not Model C is because it's still the same chip, the same RAM, and all of that, but it has some significant improvements. There are four USB ports now instead of just two. The corners are rounded, you know, some easy things like that. It's a nicer form factor. The composite jack is gone. The option is still there through the audio jack, but it just kind of streamlines things. Uh, the other significant change is they've switched it from an SD card to a micro SD card, and the biggest thing about that for me is the SD card holder was plastic and if you depending on your case or what you were doing it had a tendency to break off and so the uh, the new micro SD card holder is metal which is a, a really nice improvement 
That's outstanding. Now, does that SD card, does it still stick out a little bit, or with micro SD, is it completely encased? It looks like I don't have one yet. They've only been out for about a week, and of course, they pretty much instantly sold out. They're getting easier to come by now, uh, but it looks like it's going to be flush up in the system and not have that, that piece sticking out. Yeah, that's one thing that always bothered me, particularly when you're trying to deploy a Raspberry Pi as an appliance-based, you know, device where you don't want it to be so much hackery as you want it to be, you know, look more professional. Now, on that note, I wanted to ask what some people would say that the Raspberry Pi is really primarily meant as a learning tool and not really meant for anything remotely related to production, even though many people are... Says the guy with Google Glass on his face. ...using them. I think I even saw a couple, maybe a year ago or so, somebody was using it in, in, um, in biomedical, for a biomedical purpose. Um, so what, what's your opinion? I mean, can the Raspberry Pi be used as a serious production tool? The Raspberry Pi was designed for education. That is its original intent. It was inspired by the BBC Micro, which was a computer back in 1981 that was designed for educational use. But that said, the reason we all love it is because it is so infinitely useful. And the new Model B Plus has 40 GPIO instead of the old 26. You can do so many things with it. And on top of that, it's cheap. And so it's not the fastest, it's not the greatest. There's so many other of these small boards, but a lot of them are 80 or $90. And the Pi is $35, and that makes it infinitely useful. And so if it meets the needs of those projects, then sure, it's perfectly sufficient for all sorts of things. As long as you have the right power. As long as you have the right power. Um, can you tell me, so you've, you've spent a lot of time looking, and not only doing your own projects, but um, looking at what other people have done with Raspberry Pis. If I were to ask you what's the first coolest project that comes to mind, what would you say? I think my favorite is still the bilingual functional R2-D2. That thing is so awesome, and it's it's a year or two old now, but it's still one of my favorite projects. And I think part of it is that a guy made it for his girlfriend. He decided to make this life-size, functional, takes commands in Japanese and English R2-D2, and then she married him. So clearly, <laughs> it was a successful project. Um, you you obviously you work for Red Hat, and I understand that um, that Fedora has a dis, uh, distribution that runs on the Raspberry Pi. Is there anything you can tell me about Pydora specifically? My favorite thing about Pydora, and and I tell people obviously as I work for Red Hat and I work on Fedora a lot, Fedora and Pydora are my preferred distributions. But when you're working with the Raspberry Pi, you should choose the distro that most suits your needs. But my favorite thing about Pydora, to that end, is that so many of the fun hackery projects are headless. They, they're too small. They don't, you know, they run away from you. They don't have a monitor attached. And so my favorite fun Pydora fact is that you never have to connect it to a monitor at all. If you add this little file when you flash the SD card, you can uh, have it flash the IP address out the LEDs, and then it reads them out the speakers in a delightful British accent. <laughs> oh, the, the voice out the speakers, huh? Yeah, yeah. I knew about the lights. I, I, I knew that the, the lights flashed, but I didn't know about the speakers. Now, is that some, that's something that that script is specific to uh, Pydora? I, I believe that you can you can grab the files off of GitHub, and I think you could probably use it. I've never tried using it with a distro. Why would I? Why would I use something besides Pydora? I mean, really. <laughs> That's right. Why why ever stray from Red Hat? So if people wanted to find out more about the Raspberry Pi or about your uh, projects with the Raspberry Pi or about Pydora, where could somebody go? For Pydora, you would go to Pydora, P-I-D-O-R-A dot C-A. That is the site for Pydora. For Raspberry Pi stuff, raspberrypi.org. Uh, if you're interested in other Red Hat community projects besides Pydora, uh, or besides Fedora, rather, uh, community.redhat.com is our place for all of the Red Hat upstream community projects. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us, Ruth. Oh, Pydora. That's cool. That was a cool interview, Noah. I liked uh, hearing about oh, Pydora. fantastic. Haven't followed that much. Uh, the other interview that uh, Noah managed to grab right on our second day, uh, right outside the opening of the Expo Hall, and uh, 
this is a little behind the scenes. Uh, Simon, who, who, who Noah got to interview was a great uh, big thinker in the community. Uh, Simon St. Laurent. Uh, he's uh, Simon STL on Twitter. He's senior editor at O'Reilly. He's one of the chairpersons of OSCON. And so Noah, being like instinctually the great interviewer that he is, is like, I know what I'm going to do. We didn't even discuss it. We were just on the same wavelength. Like, we were just sharing the same brain wavelength. Noah's like, this is the chairman. I'm going to set this up as the opening interview. We'll roll this as the first interview in the Linux Action Show. It's going to be great. It'll be the setup. And you'll hear Noah do a great job of setting it up as, like, we're here at OSCON and right outside the Expo Hall about to go in. And right in the interview, the guy kind of blows it. And what I love is if you watch Noah's <laughs> face, you can see Noah's like, oh, damn it. I worked really hard on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here is Simon St. Laurent, a great chat and uh, a thinker. Welcome to OSCON 2014. We're here right outside the Expo Hall where many exciting things are about to happen. Outside here we have Simon, who you are affiliated directly with O'Reilly, the company that is putting on OSCON. Thank you so much for taking time to be here with us today. How are you? I'm great. It's, the show's about half over. Everything's going smoothly. The pieces are coming together. Outstanding. So tell me a little bit about what it is that you do for O'Reilly and what it, and I know this might be a loaded question, but what exactly it took to get OSCON to come together? Okay, so most of what I do historically has been editorial. So I've been an editor, I started out bringing in books. I focus on a couple of different areas, but mostly these days it's web stuff. I'm also co chair of our Fluent Conference, which is the web show. I, so I have two shows I have Fluent, I have OSCON, and then I'm also helping us figure out what stories we should be telling about the web, whether it's in print or in conferences or online. So that, yes, there are many things there. OSCON is special for me in that it goes outside of my usual boundary zones. Uh -huh. uh, this works really well that I have two co-chairs, Sarah and Matthew, make that much easier and we also are trying to connect things to more of the stuff we're doing internally mm -hmm. so the web stuff i know really well mm -hmm. the stuff beyond that i know less and less well sure. but there are also pieces that make me really excited so we mix it up so tell me a little bit how the web connects to 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 oscon i mean I, you know there's it's not it's not it's not necessarily live coverage of oscon or anything like that yeah. right it's so the web the web is sort of the background in lots of the talks here. People uh -huh. are doing, you know, Python this or PHP this, and the result is a web app. Uh -huh. we, have, we have a track that does cover front-end stuff, but it's a fairly small part of it because of the historic programming languages and the open source in general is really compatible with the web, but, you know, a different thing. So that, it's sort of a piece of it. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of... We have a lot of things that are more specifically programming. We also are starting to get really into the open hardware stuff. Mm -hmm. And we're also, there's a, lot, there's a lot that you can do at a conference that hasn't been done enough yet with like what we're calling geek lifestyle right now. So sure. you know, combining these different pieces to look at the way we, we live in a different way. Mm -hmm. So I would consider myself in the truest sense of the word to be a geek. Tell me a little bit about this geek-like li lifestyle. It's... It's varied year by year, and it's a, it's a very flexible category. We, it, it could be everything from home automation. There was actually a great talk a few years ago on garden automation. Um, it involved like making sensors, and then the, the speaker was a Linux kernel developer, so everything was in C++, yeah. and you know, using that to control garden hoses. Uh, you know, it's become more normal. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Nest obviously is doing a lot of these things, and we're, we're seeing these things happen. It's still 
people at OSCON still tend to be a few years ahead of what's normal out there. Mm -hmm. So we, we try to bring in as much of that as we can. So, and as I've walked around, I've certainly seen a couple of those booths. I mean, they had the Open Hacker laptop. You know, it's absolutely right. fantastic. And projects like that, you know, just, it really just lights a spark in my eye, right? But um, one of the things that I guess I was a little disappointed with, and maybe you can speak on, is why at a, at a conference that is primarily geared towards open source do we see so many closed source solutions? If you walk around about, about you know, the operating systems that some of these people are using, right. they're not open source operating systems. I'm wondering, why do you think that is, and what can we do to change that? So this uh, is a lot harder of a question to ask than it sounds. When Noah asked that question, it almost seems natural. But if you think about it, this is one of the chairmen of a convention. We're saying, hey, we've noticed a lot of the people coming here are not necessarily practicing open source themselves in some regards. And I want to touch on this more in a few minutes. We have an interesting conversation I want to get into. So listen to his answer and then keep that in mind as we go forward. Well, there are a couple of different stories on that. So one is that, you know, when Apple was first coming out with OS X, OS, mm -hmm. it just, it was... They had an open source story at the core of it. There still is an open source story at the core of it. It's mm -hmm. just become less and less of the story. Hmm. And that and the Unix tools gave developers a sense of, hey, I can do this. Yeah. I'm shifting the other direction these days. I, I'm running Linux at home. I'm you know, moving, moving further and further away from that. Uh -huh. The other thing that's happened, though, less with Apple, more with Microsoft, is that I'm seeing the companies that used to be these completely closed systems opening up more and more and more of it. So like sure. Scott Hanselman yeah. gave a talk yesterday on like the Visual Studio ecosystem and how that was changing. I was like really happily surprised to see that like Windows is actually like part of their open source yeah. story here. Yeah. Not as much as I'd like, mm -hmm. but they're they're coming down the road with us finally. That's a pretty good answer too. And I something I noticed too is even companies like Microsoft are integrating a lot of open source services now and and making more maybe maybe the right approach is making it more making their software more accommodating to play in that field. So it was a pretty good answer. So we'll continue on. So I always look at those things as like a wolf babysitting your child. Do you, do we really trust do we really trust these companies that have been so wrapped up in proprietary closed source software? Do we really trust them even if they are willing to to, to, to venture out into the open source world, I mean, is that really what we want to see, or would we rather see, like you were talking about before, you know, these these real grassroots hacker type mm -hmm. projects where it's it's somebody doing something, you know, themselves? I'm always going to be happy with a grassroots hacker yeah. project, um, unless it doesn't work. But you know, um, <laughs> which is frequently right. The, the trust question is hard. I mean, mm -hmm. for me, like a lot of the sting, I have a natural tendency to cheer for the underdog. Yeah, and. Yep. When I see companies that are no longer in the powerful positions that they used to be, mm -hmm. and they're adapting open source, mm -hmm. I, I feel, it's odd, I, I feel sort of, I, <laughs> it's, it's not just that I'm happy that they're changing or happy that they've fallen, it's that they're less powerful, right. and that makes me feel a little better that it's probably a nice wolf, maybe. Yep. Uh, once, so much of it comes down to you know, what people think they can get away with. Right. And even the best companies, these things can change suddenly when Absolutely. people change. So as power gets a little better distributed in this system, I, I think we're going to see more and more, okay, we don't have to control everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's hope that the, that the direction moves that way because that, that would be a fantastic world, I think, that we'd all like to see. Um, walking around the expo hall, you've been in there. What, uh, what has been your favorite presentation, not presentation, but what has been your favorite booth exhibit so far? I'm really, really fond of the hardware showcase. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I do some soldering. I do make mm -hmm. some things, but I've never made anything like what they're doing. Sure. And the, the combination of open with 
things you can touch and play with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just having the creators there to explain what they're doing mm -hmm. has really been the most exciting part easily for me. Yeah, it really is, and it's a fantastic conference. Is is there anyone? Uh, is there any place that you would point people to, or anyone you would point people to directly um, if they wanted to become involved with OSCON, find it more information about OSCON, or maybe a plea for people to to join us here next year, 2015 OSCON? Well, we're just getting started on what OSCON 2015 will look like. Okay. It'll be here. Mm -hmm. We know that it'll be similar timing. But the program, you know, we'd love to get input. What did you love about OSCON? What didn't you love about OSCON? Mm -hmm. We're starting that conversation. Not quite tomorrow, but pretty close to tomorrow. Uh -huh. So we're trying to get as much lead time into figuring out what the shape of OSCON should be before we start asking for specific proposals. Mm -hmm. So by all means, let us know. OSCON.com is the easy place to find us. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, to contact me, contact our co-chairs. We're just happy to have the conversation about what's working, what more do you want. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah, really, thank you very much to Simon for joining us. It was a great chat. And so uh, I he touched on a lot of stuff there that I want to uh, kind of circle back on. I know, Heavens, you had some thoughts on uh, the sort of Microsoft going to all of these Linux and open source conventions and really trying to have a presence there. What do you think it's about? Well, considering Microsoft has been a little bit more, they're not so desktop-focused anymore and more putting a lot of their development and money into Azure. And Azure is generally for the web. So Node is one of the big things that they focus on for their Azure platform. They've finally tasted Node and how the Node package manager works. And <laughs> they've got their own little NuGet package manager. They're starting to build their own software repo in Windows inside Visual Studio to get all their package yeah. updates, library yeah. updates, yeah. all that crap. Yeah. They're tasting open source. Huh. And they're like, ooh, I see what the hell they're, why everyone's starting to like this. It's got good stuff. Yeah. yeah in fact, uh, just recently they moved their uh, their TypeScript development from their sort of isolated right. CodePlex website to uh, GitHub, which is um, you know pretty yeah, big news. Yeah, they were talking about that. They were talking about how they're how they're going to be putting more stuff on GitHub. Now it is interesting. We asked them and we said, <clears throat> so how many people at Microsoft work in the open? I think I think they call it the open source division. And you know, before the Nokia acquisition, Microsoft has a headcount I think of around fifty thousand before the acquisition, and uh, she said 100. 100 people at Microsoft are working on open source. Now, but she did, she did point out, <clears throat> she emphasized that it's because, in a lot of ways, they're using open source in different areas throughout Microsoft now. So where it used to be contained to a singular group, now more and more of the departments and divisions in Microsoft are looking at how they can use it. So it, she's like, that, that 100 number doesn't really quite equate to anything anymore. But that's the group that's like their core focus is you have a budget to go to these events, demo, you know, uh, interface with communities. That's that's what that core group does. Uh, so it's kind of it's kind of an interesting deal. Uh, I we had an interview with Chris Bona in the Linux Action Show last Sunday, and he touched on pretty big interview. And I didn't see a lot of response from the community on some of the things that he said. So I wanted to pull out a couple of quotes and then bounce it around with our virtual lug to get your opinion on it. So uh, the first thing that DeBona said that I thought was, uh, it's obviously, it's a Google way to look at it, but I want to ask you guys if perhaps the concept isn't potentially worth considering. He mentioned that the fragmentation that Android now faces is simply a problem because winners have fragmentation, and the reason why we think it's a problem is because open source itself is used to losing. Here, I'll play it. 
But yeah, Android, though, it's just a whole different world. I mean, mm -hmm. the thing about the billion devices that Sundar mentioned at uh, Google I.O. during his keynote that a lot of people sort of didn't parse was that he was just talking about the devices that register with Google, mm -hmm. you know? That's not counting the hundreds of millions of other devices that ship in, in fractional shares mm -hmm. from Chi you know, Chinese factories, mm -hmm. you know, the Amazon Kindle Fire. Mm -hmm. Those things are all Android, too. Right, and right. It's like, you know, this is how you know that Android is really open source. Yes. This is how you know that Chromium is really open source because other people ship it. Right. And we're not going, oh, no, you can't ship it, you know, because we're not that company. We really shipped it under a real open source license that people could use. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of cool. You know. now, now, do you think that, that providing that level of freedom also uh, provides the ability for companies to abuse it? So, for example, when I bought my Verizon Samsung phone, uh -huh. I have a lot of Verizon apps. I have a lot of stuff I didn't really want on the phone that isn't really part of the Android experience. It's just Verizon wanted that stuff on there. Yeah. And, the, and, and, and the ability for those OEMs to modify uh -huh. that operating system could be seen as a detraction for some users, right? Yeah, um, I guess. I mean, I hate to say it. Um, but that's a problem winners have. Hey mm -hmm. You know, you know your platform's winning when you have those kinds of problems. Hey Fragmentation is a problem winners have. Hey and and I think that open source was Thanks. so used to losing, mm -hmm. losing the desktop, losing this, losing yeah. that. Even mm -hmm. though we had you know done such a great job winning in the server, mm -hmm. um, that you know feeling the win in a consumer market felt like betrayal for some people. Okay, so uh, let's take that on. Is, uh, is, is, is the Android fragmentation simply a result of its popularity? And is maybe the reason why we react to it as a bad thing is because open source is so used to losing. <clears throat> that's, a pretty, that's, a, that's a pretty big concept. So before we get into that, I want to thank our last sponsor this week, and that is the awesome folks over at DigitalOcean. And DigitalOcean is rocking it these days, you guys. Go over to DigitalOcean right now because we've got a promo code for the month of July, and I would love to represent for Linux Unplugged. Use the promo code UnpluggedJuly when you check out, and you'll get a $10 credit. Now, what is DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean is simple cloud hosting dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. And boy, is that not the case. They have a brand new data center in London where some of the folks on our subreddit are getting new cloud servers spun up in 21 seconds. Now, what they're really going to say is, look, you can expect to have a cloud server spun up in 55 seconds. That's amazing. And pricing plans start at only $5 a month for 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one blazing fast CPU, and a terabyte of tier one bandwidth. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London, brand new London. Their interface is so simple and so intuitive. The control panel really gives you the ability to deploy a server in under a minute and have complete control over that. It doesn't feel like you have reduced functionality. And the best part is they have a straightforward API that power users can replicate on their own. On a, so you could, have, you could have an interface to the DigitalOcean droplet system that is all through a bash script using their API, deploying servers as you need them. Scale up, scale down using DigitalOcean infrastructure starting only $5 per month. But when you use Unplugged July, you get the $10 credit been talking to folks this morning about how they're setting up own cloud 7 on a DigitalOcean droplet running Ubuntu 14.04 and I'm thinking I'm going to do the same thing. Why not, right? $5 I have my dedicated droplet. I can move it around, I can back it up, I can snapshot it. I just have to, it's it's so straightforward and that is so worth $5 a month for me. There's other things you can use DigitalOcean for too that you might not have thought of. But because DigitalOcean has seen such incredible growth, specifically in the developer and Linux communities, you're starting to see awesome solutions built around DigitalOcean that are just sort of a result of their success. In fact, here's rolling your own CDN. Build a three-continent CDN for $25 in one hour. 
Now, this isn't necessarily a DigitalOcean thing, but this is a blog post that shows you by how using DigitalOcean, Nginx, and Docker, you can set up your own CDN that does distribution content all over the world. Now, if you're a podcaster, you know, if you have a podcast right now and you're serving up your MP3 files from a single web server, stop it. That's a bad experience for your users. It's bad. It's just bad all around. Because every time somebody's downloading that MP3 file, that's hanging up one of your web server sessions. So it's not responding to serving up a web page. It also makes the download slow. It's just inappropriate. It makes you look unprofessional. But for $25, you could set up a, a worldwide CDN using DigitalOcean droplets. Your end users get their podcast faster. Your web server's more responsive. And during peak download times, you don't have that chug-a-lug that happens on your web server when everybody's either loading web pages or downloading MP3 for $25, and this blog post tells you how to do it. You see how when you combine KVM, you combine an amazing interface, you combine great data centers, SSD drives, and tier one bandwidth, and incredible value, you can really start to create a whole new class of technology. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code UnpluggedJuly when you check out. Get that $10 credit. That'll get you started on your own CDN for two months for free. Right? Go check it out. DigitalOcean.com. UnpluggedJuly when you check out. And a really, really big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Unplugged show. Okay, so let's uh, let's uh, kick it around to the mumble room. Uh, is uh, is Android fragmentation simply a result of it being success? Uh, I want to start with you, Noah, since you were talking to DeBona. What was going through your head when he gave you that answer? Were you agreeing or were you like, ah, this kind of sounds a little bit like spin? Okay, so my problem with android i think it's i think it's one of your gripes too is that android because it was late to the game had to make compromises in their operating in what they would have liked to have seen as an ideal user experience in order to uh cave to what the carriers wanted and i think that makes for and yes it makes it much more prolific than i'm sure that, uh, he says what does he say 85 percent or whatever of all devices are yeah. running android and that's great but it's a crappy Android experience. There's a lot of really crappy Android devices out there, so I, I kind of think it's a crap answer. He acknowledged, too, that it falls down when it comes to the security aspect of it. Uh, but the way, So I, I want to take particular, like, I actually kind of agree with it is a problem that winners have in the sense that when you reach a certain mass adoption, there's so many people that are going to start experimenting with your operating system or just going with it. Like when I had a chat with Aaron Saigo about challenges of building the Vivaldi tablet, one of the, thing he's, one of the things that really stood out to me that he said was, when we talk to these manufacturers, if we tell them it needs to be Android compatible, it clicks. They know, they know exactly what we want. They give us all the specs. But when we tell them it needs to be Linux compatible, they have no idea what we're talking about. Right. And so part of that. So you just see there's this adoption level that's, that's through the entire stack from people making software all the way down to the people assembling it on the manufacturing line. So there's just this mass adoption level where Android almost can't help but have all kinds of weird incarnations of it because it's almost a de facto operating system. It's like it has become one of the general purpose platforms, at least for low power devices. So that part I agree with. The part that I take issue with is I don't agree that open source is used to losing. And he gave kind of a mention to, well, except for in the server, but let's be honest. Apache crushes the competition. Nginx is rock solid. There is so much open source technology that is winning. Android itself is open source technology that is winning. So to say that open source is used to losing, I think that is a mischaracterization. I think you could argue perhaps the desktop is used to losing, but to say open open source is not just used to winning, open source has won. 
Well, yeah. so here's my perspective on it is when I look at this and I, I've interviewed Chris before, so I kind of get where his mindset's coming from. He's looking at it as if I walk up to Joe Blow on the street and say, oh, yeah, you're really you're using an open source product. They're going to look at you with a blank stare. They have no idea what you're talking about. Um, if you say Android or something they recognize, then, in fact, you've actually made that connection. So I think he is talking about the desktop, and I also think he's also expanding on the the branding, the recognition. Do people understand that they're benefiting from this thing called open source? Um, people don't. I, I they can, understand I they agree, benefit from Android. I agree if we're only talking about Linux enthusiasts who critique Android. But in reality, it's not just Linux users who critique some of these problems with Android, but it's actually the entire technology industry who really sure. you know, doesn't even follow the Linux desktop necessarily. Sure. So sure. I don't know if that's influencing the way they see it. I do agree that you know, maybe we're not used to seeing what success looks like in some regards on the desktop, but I, I don't. I think it's also how we define success. I mean, I think geeks and casual folks definitely, when it comes to technology, we def- we define success very differently. Uh, I use my myself and my mother-in-law as an example. Uh, for her, success in technology is when the button she pushes on the remote works properly. <laughs> and for me, it's when I solve this amazingly complex problem that took a lot of work to do. Um, yeah. You know, so usually I think it just differs from person to person. All right. Well, I know the mumble room has a couple other thoughts on that, but I want to move sure. on because uh, here was Chris's response to why fragmentations actually gives Android its edge. And he thinks, yeah, okay, if we accept there's fragmentation, I'm not even sure if it's a problem. And the thing is, if you look at the the Verizon builds, if you look at the, you know, it's funny. Actually, I uh, I don't want to sound like I'm betraying my people, but mm-hmm. I actually prefer the Moto X build to the oh, stock okay. Nexus build right now sure. because it has this really cool feature where you can shake it and take a picture. Yeah. You know, so you don't have to worry about unlocking it another way. So I can whip it out of my pocket while shaking, like, uh, you know, like I'm having a seizure. But uh, it's fine, though. And then I can take my picture really fast. Mm-hmm. And I really like that feature. And I really like the uh, the Bluetooth trust feature in the Moto X. Mm-hmm. And those are things that Motorola brought to it. And Motorola is not part of Google anymore, so I'm not just kissing corporate right, butt here. Right. Right. Uh, and and I think that it's not wrong to try to excel by adding new things to mm-hmm. an operating system. Now, mm-hmm. I would hope, I would love if those were open source and brought back into the platform, uh, or they were available through an app or, or whatever. I can accept that. So he's saying, you look, sometimes the way you get some of these new innovations is by having different people try stuff. And don't we see that in just Linux distros itself? You know, uh, you, you look at uh, things that, that have come through, like different installers, where one distribution really lands on a good way to do an installer, and you see a lot of other distributions pick that up, or, or things like that. Uh, so sometimes there, in the fragmentation, there can be sort of this organic, slow evolution of a consensus. So that I can buy onto. Uh, but he goes on to kind of say, you know, if you think about it in some sense... On, on he he calls it open source, but I really think he means Linux when he's saying this. He's like, you guys are forking all day long, so you got to check yourself before you come all up on Android's territory. And that's why I'm I'm also pretty unimpressed by fragmentation arguments and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? You know, in the open source world, yeah. everything's a fork. Every time you ship a distribution, every time you ship a program, you're forking it. You're mm-hmm. you're you're putting a moment in time. Yep. And you're sticking with that moment right. until they upgrade again right. or until they app get update or you're forking every time you do that. Mm-hmm. So the measure of us as programmers or as app developers or as carriers or handset manufacturers mm-hmm. is how we keep up with those updates, how we keep bringing the future of software development to our users. Right. right? right. And, and that's why Android's at 84%. Boom. So he says, hey, if you look at it this way, when Ubuntu LTS 14.04 ships, that's a fork. 
Yeah, I think he's splitting hairs on that one. I can't defend that one at all. I disagree. I think that I see what he's saying, but I th- and he is definitely including software in, in addition to uh, Linux distribution. So he's kind of using the true open source broad term. But I disagree with him. I think that he's wrong in stating that merely by putting uh, the open so- uh, an open source license on a product that you've instantly forked it because magically someone else is going to come along and do something else with it. Not necessarily. Hmm. Yeah, he's messing up with terminology a little bit. Uh, Same with how in programming we say that monads are the most evil, uh, or they're really weird little named things, and no one ever likes to talk about them. I kind of see his point to a sense, though. I've always kind of felt like when you take... I've always felt like maybe one of the reasons rolling distributions make the most sense is because when you carve off a stable Linux distribution, you're introducing sort of... Uh, a fake structure where none inherently exists. And this is something that just us humans do all the time. We always have to go in and create structure everywhere. Got to set up a system. Got to got to make sure we follow a process. Everywhere we go, we got to organize it. And I, I feel like perhaps it's kind of like trying to set up a dam in a river. Like you can hold back the water for a little bit, but eventually it's got to break through. And whenever you stable snapshot something, essentially it's a race against time as it deviates further and further away. And like if you look at what Red Hat Enterprise Linux does is they literally have to backport stuff from future fixes to the old stuff because they are in a sense maintaining their own fork of the Linux kernel in Red Hat Linux and then all the other stuff too. Debian as well. Yeah, all of them. All of them. Yeah, well, they really actually fork, but sometimes it's just a yes, snapshot right. of yeah. time instead that, of a fork. See, I think that's where you can play semantics. Is it a snapshot in time or is it a genuine fork that's maintained for like 10 years? And that's where Red Hat well, is going to... Well, you also think about it this way. Like, for instance, you know, he was talking about how fragmentation is a... Uh, it, it shows how much success it's is going on problems. in Android. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, one thing I was thinking was that's true to a certain extent because if you look at Debian, it's got to be the most forked <laughs> yeah. distribution on the planet. So. Yeah. And it is the biggest in terms of packages so and it's probably the biggest in terms of development as well i mean you got ubuntu it's kind of a quasi fork of it and it's got all sorts of forks of its own so it's <laughs> it, there's definitely something to be said for that yeah very true right yeah you know it's interesting it, it didn't uh, it's in the full interview but one of the other things he said that jumped out at me is he said the way i look at all of this the way i look at android on that phone the way i look at android on noah's google glass and the android that's going to be on your watch he this is debona he says to to me i see those as different distributions those are different distros in my world that's an interesting way. To, I don't, again, I think you could play semantics there. You're redefining what it means, but it's an interesting way to think about it. Um, now the elephant in the room for Noah and I, at least. There was one There was one topic of conversation our entire trip at OSCON that really sort of dominated. Basically, every time we stopped to take a breather, Noah and I would kind of turn to each other and, and talk about um, the unbelievable, undescribable, amount of Macintosh laptops we saw at OSCON. Um, and, and I was gi- right there with you. Yeah, yeah. And to give you an example, uh, uh, kind of funny, when we were walking up to OSCON, and uh, there's this hallway, and this hallway is lined with tables and chairs. And every table and every chair had at least one or two people working on a MacBook all facing us. So as we walked into OSCON, we walked down this hallway that was end-to-end lined up with Macs and that white glowing Apple logo as we walked into OSCON, and, and I, I can't put a, I can't underscore this enough. 
literally almost every computer there was a Mac. Now, there were for sure some PCs, but most of those were like at the registration booths provided by Oscon or like somebody's work uh, Lenovo that they brought with them to the booth. But more often than not, I mean, Kernel Linux, jump in here with me, right? I mean, it was unbelievable the, the ratio, right? And so here's, and this is what I've been waiting the entire episode to, to dig know, in on. As I'm sure you're well aware. <laughs> yeah. This is what this is what bothers me, right? So we have we went to a convention that's called OSCON, op- the open source convention, the place where I'm supposed to be able to go as an open source user and feel like I'm at home. I'm at home with open source software. And here is what here's what I took away from the conference, and it's a lot like like uh, LinuxCon. Their mentality is that. Twitter was there, for example. Twitter uses, I guess, because they're at OSCON, they use open source software. Sure, yeah, on the back end. Who cares? Who cares? I don't care what Twitter's using on the back end. I cared 10 years ago because I thought 10 years ago that if these big companies picked up Linux and adopted it and put a bunch of money into it, that it would eventually trickle down to the desktop. And as Ah. I see that not happening, it infuriates me. Well, I think you're conflating two things. So let me back up. I think... Think of OSCON a little bit like this. This is something I came to. It's as much as, as for us, the community, to go see how business is like the the end product of open source are these companies. Like everything we talk about, you go there and see the end results of how they actually use it. I think that's beneficial for the community itself to see. But you can flip that around too, Noah. Like if you noticed, when we talk to some of these folks... Like, we are also, it's them reconnecting with the open source community. So I think it's by going to these events, like OSCON, that they kind of connect back to the original roots that everything starts from. So I think it's a two-way street in that regard, and I kind of tip my hat to the OSCON folks. But what I think you're, the core thing you're getting at here is, essentially, supposedly, here's a bunch of people making money off of open source. A lot of developers were there, a lot of people there from their profession, and they're all pretty much... At least, I would say, a ratio of 20 to 1 using Macs, and probably a a ratio of 7 to 10 using iPhones to Android devices. And that's that's being generous on the one side. Um, But the the thing that really irks me is that the companies that, that benefit the most from the backs of the community in open source then those people that are in the community are the first to get shafted when when the when desktop clients come out for things like Netflix or and, Google Drive right um, i just i yeah. feel like you should eat your own dog food if you're going to come to a conference and talk about how everyone should use uh, free and open source software and and open source is the best use it and not just not just on your server and on your back end boot into it use it as a desktop I, daily here's driver. what i think the problem is is and it comes down to a little bit of market dynamics. So Apple just released their quarter re, qu- quarterly results a couple of days ago, uh, Friday or something like that. Their Mac sales grew 18% in the last quarter. The rest of the entire PC industry is down 2% overall. Apple is up 18% and everybody else on all on on average is down 2%. They are seeing because honestly they're well-built machines I think they're seeing a huge adoption curve right now. And this is a trend I've noticed over the last seven years as I've gone to these conferences. It's more and more Macs. And it started with some Macs to now it's all Macs. It's all Macs in the booths. It's Macs in in the users. It's ridiculous. And I think part of the problem is a lot of times in professional uh, uses, people are using Linux on the server. So all they really need is an SSH session to that Linux box. So they get a Mac because it's trouble-free. It runs Netflix. It runs Photoshop. It's got all 
the commercial software, all the it honestly has all the open source software too. You put Brew on a Mac, now you got a package manager. Bob's your uncle. You're installing stuff from the command line. Then you SSH into your Linux box. You do your development all day long in Sublime Text. Yeah, you're happy. You go home. And for them, they just buy this laptop. It's got 10 hours of battery life. Uh, it's fairly trouble free, and it gives them SSH right out of the box. I know it sounds trivial, but I really think that's what's selling these things. And I think as a as a community, what we've got to do is nut up. And I'm not using that sexually. I mean in the terms of like, let's seriously come to a realization that our boat is sinking and that these people are jumping ship to the Mac like crazy. But the reality is eventually they're going to get bored. They're going to want something better. But we're not there when they're ready to jump. Linux runs like butt on these MacBooks. These freaking MacBooks are selling more than any other PC in the industry right now. And we can't manage to get Linux working on them. Oh, you want Thunderbolt? Go F yourself. Sorry. Oh, you want high, HDP, high DPI resolution? Hey, it kind of works on, depending on which desktop you choose. Oh, you want thermal management? Sorry. Apple has an SMC controller. We can't do that. We won't, we won't even bother like trying to reverse engineer it. Obviously, it's not an ideal solution. But the problem is a huge, huge number of our community is buying these machines and we do not as Linux, have a solution to make a great out-of-the-box experience on these MacBooks. It's it's half-assed. you got trackpad problems after sleep. You have no Ethernet support. You've got crappy to zero thermal management. And it's still a pain in the ass to make it work in the first place. So what are we going to do? Thi- I think the problem is actually even bigger than what you're talking about because that is assuming these people want to come to Linux in the first place. And the well, reality is I don't see a lot of Mac OS users complaining about their macOS experience and wanting to come to Linux. And the the best way to get those people, the best way to get those users is right now while they're on Windows, when they're looking for something to jump off the instability and, and, and the bugginess of Windows, that's the time to get these users. Because once we lose them to the Mac, it's going to be twice as hard, three times as hard, five times as hard to get them to come to Linux. Well, there, there, As somebody who came from Mac, as somebody who came from Mac, I got to say, what's going to might be the major driver is when they have to upgrade their computer every two years just to keep current software. I can't, I had that problem. I was like, I cannot spend that much money on computer hardware. I'm switching to Linux because I know that will future-proof my machines. Wimpy, you think the targets moved right out from underneath us? Well, I, just listening to your discussion, it strikes me that, you know, a few years ago we might have been having this discussion about people using Windows right, machines, and now right. we're talking about people running Mac OS X on Apple hardware. So is is now the principal target for Linux adoption, uh, the Apple Mac See, audience? I feel like what Noah's worried about will apply to probably the majority percentage of people who switch. However, there will be still a large number Let's just let's for fun say twenty percent of people who switch that are technically inclined switch switch after a year or two from Mac OS to Linux. I don't think this is actually all that unusual. I've seen threads about coming from Mac to Linux because people get bored after a while, and I feel like when that happens, and it, I for a lot of technically inclined people who are intellectually curious, I believe that does you arrive to a point in Mac OS X without after that long of usage where you've essentially mastered the operating system, and it's you realize okay, I'm now seeing the walls of the holodeck I, I i would like a better program than this and you go look for linux and maybe you start as a dual boot and then you could switch over if if we were there and ready to to supply this hardware and i think what's at the end of the day what's selling is the macbook i think the macbook air i mean linus torvalds use a mac uses a macbook air for yeah. god's sakes right i think this, this hardware no i think he still has one he no, has he has a, a yeah, he, no he still uses them yeah, he still has it, I think. He just has he just has like more than one machine, but yeah. 
He also has a Pixel, right? So, I mean, he's got a few machines. But I, I guess what the point I'm trying to get at is I feel like the target, like Wimpy said, the target has moved and we are not responding. We need to be working like on better Thunderbolt support, better high, uh, high DPI support. We need to get... Uh, you know, we need to re- re- reverse engineer the SMC controller in these Macs so that way there's thermal management, and then the battery life will be better too. And all of this stuff, and it 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 definitely set off like the the red alert. We we have a major problem, and nobody's talking about it. And I guess I I kind of also feel like until you go to one of these events and you see it for yourself, when you go to an event filled with your peer groups and none of them are using Linux. I mean, it, it, it really, it's, it's one thing to hear about it through a podcast. It is another thing entirely to be standing there and seeing it and realize, oh, man, we have a huge problem. Well, man, I would see, expand I, on I that. Think... Go, Go ahead. ahead, Matt. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, one thing I would expand on, and this is something ha- with a wife that uses a, a OS X and actually uses a Mac, that I experienced is the number one reason why people use Macs, and she and I bet Angela probably attest to this as well, is uh, it's called Apple Care. It's not an extended warranty. We the logic board pops because Mac logic boards are crap. I'm sorry they are. Um, they're they're garbage. And so, but the user doesn't care because they know they can go to the Mac store like we did. It's under Apple Care. She exchanges it. Uh, they fixed the logic board. It didn't cost us anything. It took three days, and she never missed a beat. She didn't. It, it, the experience was completely seamless. Her data was safe. She didn't have to care. The other that thing, phrase right there. The know. other thing, especially for folks who are not technically inclined, is. They, you, you know, they really need a brand that they feel like, well, at least I know this brand puts out quality right. at a certain level. And I don't know, I don't know about RAM, I don't know about megahertz, I don't know about SSD, but I know that Apple is known for a certain kind of machine. And if I'm willing to spend the money, I can get that. And I think a lot more people are willing to spend the money than we realize. Because a lot of these folks now are buying a machine and they're using it for like five plus years. So it's not as oh, huge yeah. of a deal. I mean, well, I have an old. I, I mean, I don't brand. use it hardly, but I have an old iMac that I'm running off an external hard drive. The point is, is people are buying these things because they understand the experience. They don't give a flying crap if it runs on hamsters. They know what it does. They understand it. They're able to wrap their brains around it. Macs have now gained in global market share for 32 of the last 33 quarters in a row. Yeah, not surprised. I'm not saying well, they're the largest machine, but I'm saying we're just ignoring them. Go ahead, Heavens. No, it's not even an experience. It's a company that people can blame or sue. That is the backing thing that will make most people or companies decide on what to use. They just want someone to blame. No one wants the like to have the what the hell the responsibility to need to own up to your own hardware. That's why Apple or that's why a lot of companies which sell a lot of software or OSs are no, good. No, that, that's crap. The, the reason they, they disagree the – re, I completely disagree. The point of it is is that people that value their time that aren't willing to – or interested in spending their time doing that. Maybe they're a chef, an artist. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they make music. Whatever it is, the, the point is, is they don't want to geek out. They don't care. They want that experience. I've uh, worked closely with Chris Perillo. He'll tell you the same thing. He buys these machines because of their experience. He does. He knows how the stuff works, but he doesn't care. Uh, you know, yeah, uh, Chris Fisher, for bubble. example, runs it because it does certain tasks well. Mm-hmm. I'm not a Mac person. I freaking hate them with a passion. But <laughs> I'm not. I'm not naive enough to think that it's this. You know, we, we look at it from a very technical point of view, and Joe Average 
doesn't care. Right. They just don't give a rap. Well, what I'm finding, so. though, and what I guess struck a chord with me, because I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with your assessment there, Matt. What, what struck a chord with me is now we're going to OSCON. And, and also, by the way, I'm coming from like a multi-year trend, too, of this whole sure, thing. But sure. Now we're going to like the geeks, like the people writing software, the people that are creating server platforms. And, you know, like you go to Rackspace and Rackspace has the Rackspace cloud and they're deploying bare metal servers with Core OS. And <laughs> right, everybody right, there right. has a MacBook. I really don't see why that is an issue, though. I mean, if they're developing open source software, software I could go out in the world and say, even if it's GPL3 and download and use, I don't give two craps what they are using on. They could be right. developing on Windows yeah. 8. I don't think they I care mean, either. Use... Yeah. I, I want the comfort level it. of Apple. Most of the time, it's like what you said before there, Chris, someone is, they just want the ecosystem. I always explained or tried to compare Apple to be this metaphor of being a stick or a stake in the ground on a chain. You're on this chain and in this bubble of happiness. That's Apple. That's its sure. nice environment. It's a beautiful little bubble. Everything is desired or given to you and you're very happy. Whenever yeah. you want to get outside that bubble, you're screwed. You cannot oh, leave that, that yeah. place. I think why, and I, I like. Uh, I think the point that hey, at least these people are making open source software is a valid one. We should underscore that. My point is, what I want to try to begin to push onto the community to at least to think about is, if we want these people to someday switch, because I would think, I mean, I as a desktop Linux user really want more desktop Linux users because I want more of what I need to do on Linux to be more available to me and I want it more available to everybody. I know kernel Linux feels the same way very passionately. More people using Linux is better for everybody and I just want that when these MacBook users who are professionally technical and, and decide they do want to try something else wouldn't it be amazing if we could make that transition actually work because right now that MacBook in some ways is a prison. They're, the only other direction they have that's even kind of halfway supported is Windows. That's so true. And I think Kernel Linux would actually agree with this assessment in that the direction to get people to begin to use Linux starts with the PC repair techs. When they come in with a broken Windows machine, send them out with a Linux install. If uh, Give them the option. Say, look, you're doing this, 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 and this. Nothing that can't be done on Linux. Give this a try. Let me know how it works. I'll go ahead and mirror your drive with it fixed. If you don't like it, we'll put it back on. But give this a shot. That's where change happens. We can talk about and it all day long, but unless we're knocking on doors or something – you know, and we've action. seen that. We, I see that on a daily basis. Exactly what yeah. you're talking about, Matt. But what I just posted in the chat, and I'll reiterate it: I would yeah. rather be running all software like Steam and Netflix and yeah. all this proprietary stuff on my Linux box. I would rather have that flexibility than have the flexibility of running all open source programs, but I have to do it on a Mac. Right. So yeah, I do true. care. I do care what the developers are using. I do care what operating system they feel is most valuable, and they think the market owns if everyone has a mac they're going to write software that works well on a mac if they all uh, are running sorry, Linux, I, I think that's a completely closed-minded mindset to be honest with you it is <laughs> well no I I, well, hold on the last point <laughs> he was making is a good one though if everybody's using a mac and they're writing software then it's going to work better on the mac than it does on your linux desktop and that's a valid concern don't you think it Josh? is but I'll, i always see them all around the place on yeah. most of the conferences i look at i watch tons of conferences and they all have macbooks all over the place well Movie maybe is apparently really good apparently we should be launching the macbook action show apparently based on the demographics that i'm seeing <laughs> uh, but stay tuned for future yeah. developments yeah. i mean 
Well, one last thought yeah, I'd like, like to leave you guys like, Yeah, go ahead. Everybody to absorb on is that, you know, let's, instead of just talking in circles about it, what do we do to fix this? And, and I was pointing out to Noah, it's like, Noah nailed it. So it's like, okay, let's introduce this to our customers. Let's introduce this to our family members. Let's introduce this to people that might be interested before they take the Mac bill. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. Hey, Noah, uh, I wanted to tell folks, maybe you could give us a little info. There's this great place, especially if you're in the Grand Forks area, called altaspeed.com, where people could find out all kinds of information about Noah and his company and the services they provide. So check out altaspeed.com. Give them a look. Uh, I've, I've had the pleasure of working with Noah out in the field. I've seen how he works with his team. Uh, as somebody who's done IT contracting in the past, uh, I could tell you that uh, I spotted a good one, and, and his, Noah and his team could definitely handle it. Altaspeed.com. Check them out. They've also got uh, products available to buy there, too. Uh, all I right. appreciate the plug. We Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, we run uh, every technician that works for a company runs uh, some form of Linux. Every software piece, every piece of software we use runs on Linux, and nice. that is the primary desktop we install for any customer that comes to us with a PC problem. Yep, and Noah's, awesome. Noah's even like, all right, here's your work machine. This is Linux. Nice. You Feel free to break <laughs> right. it. I don't care if you break it. Just have fun, and if you break it, we'll fix it together. I like that. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's wrap it up there. Uh, just a, a couple of a couple of bits, um, and we can maybe talk about this more in the post show too. But on Sunday, we're going to do a review of Crux Linux, and uh, I would love to also maybe enlist some of you out there. So, mumble room, stay tuned after the show. We'll talk about this in the post show uh, about helping us do a review because on Tuesday's Linux Unplugged, following Sunday's Linux Action Show, the next upcoming episodes on Tuesday, we'll have a developer from Crux Linux join us. So, I'd like to get the mumble's room thoughts on it so we can kick it around. So, tune in on Sunday for last. We'll do the review of Crux Linux. We're also going to have Frank on from OwnCloud to talk about the new OwnCloud 7 they've just released. And uh, then on Tuesday, we'll do a community review of Crux Linux and talk to the developer. And uh, we, if you are interested, in, or if you're a Crux user, or if you have questions about Crux, go to linuxactionshow.reddit.com. We're going to have a Q&A thread up there, sticky probably right there at the top, where you can ask your questions to the Crux developer for Tuesday's show. And if you're a Crux user, I'd love to get your insights or anything you'd recommend we try Look for that thread. It'll probably be posted soon if it's not already. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com to get in on the crux action. And last but not least, a quick plug. We'd love your feedback. Go over to JupiterBroadcasting.com. Click that contact link and choose Linux Unplugged from the dropdown. I know it's so confusing, but it all makes sense because what we have is an automated system where you can send in your feedback. Our robots process it, and they send, us to a, they send it to us humans for reading right here on the air. All right, Matt. All right. Well, uh, that's going to wrap us up today. I want to say, I'm going to see you on Sunday. Go download Crux, Matt, if you haven't already, because get ready. We're going to do the action review. I've never tried Crux before. I'll never be tried it. it. Yeah. So uh, I'll be curious to hear what you think on Sunday. So I'll see you on Sunday, Matt. All right. See you then. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of Linux Unplugged. Don't forget, you can join us live on a Tuesday. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get the showtimes. JBLive.tv is where you'll find the embed for the chat room. You can also get the mumble info there if you'd like to join our virtual lug. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of Linux Unplugged. We'll see you right back here next Tuesday.
The show cannot prosper if, if people listening don't tell other people about it. I think part of the problem is that people mistake Jupiter Broadcasting as passive entertainment. That's incorrect. This is active participation. You are encouraged and in some ways like gently encouraged with a poker to get involved, share content, ask questions, disagree, agree, share ideas, and just yak in general. Do something. Well, and I, I guess I kind of feel yeah. like – I don't know because people see some sponsors. They assume, oh, well, they've got plenty of money. They don't need my help. And it really was like, yes, oh, no, no. spread the word. Tell people about it. Help us grow. I mean, I mean I'm not – you know, at the end of the day, we still make great content. That's what matters. But – and I was just a little disappointed because we do need the help really bad. It's not like, you know. Have some PR. Yeah, we need some PR help. Uh, you know, there's the Patreon page, patreon.com slash today. There's funding there to help cover costs like this. Anything, resharing it helps, all that kind of stuff. Being here live, you know, I appreciate exactly. everybody who shows up live. That's really great to get the, get the instant feedback and stuff like that, too. So, And the mumble room, you know, all this stuff is, is, is incredibly helpful. So I'm very, very, very grateful in so many, so many ways. In so many ways. I just kind of felt like this last week we went above and beyond and it kind of fell flat and I felt bad. I take it very personally, you know, because I follow this stuff very closely. Uh, what do we think of the new final Mozilla CEO, Chris Beard? The man doesn't have a beard, but he's got a great last name. He's been the Mozilla project since before Firefox 1.0 shipped. Uh, he seems to have worked in almost every aspect of the project. This seems to be a good change, right? I think my number one positive on this is that finally, you know, your facial hair has gotten a job. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. You know, because I think that's been overdue. No, in all seriousness, I think I think he sounds like a good candidate. I think he could potentially be a performer. That's why we're the show that has a beard and knows how to use it. That's right. In yeah. a way, Hat. I'm almost I'm unhappy that someone even needed to fill in for the CEO. Brandon Ike was fucking awesome. He was well, a really great guy. Chris Beard was the interim CEO during this whole uh, mix-up too. So. Uh... He uh, he's kind of was already doing the job. Yeah. So yeah, as long as someone's took took the helm. Yeah, take take the helm as it is. That's it. You know, yeah. fresh blood. Do we even put on fingers? Yeah. All right, let's go see what our title is, and then we'll get out of here. We'll we'll get. Okay. JamieTitles.com, everybody. Last Do chance. To go. What what Tattles, is the guy's uh, what's the guy's qualifications compared to Brendan Nike? I mean, obviously he didn't invent JavaScript, but. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Brandon Ike was awesome. Yeah, like yeah, decompiling hex codes and server de- script and server binaries. How do you decompile? I can decompile hex code in my head. No, as <laughs> in the binaries hexadecimal. and backtrack doing the bu- the debugging. That's what gave him the idea to make a tracing JIT compiler. I uh, backtracking through hex code. I am, um, or the, you know, just look through on the covered his uh, qualifications in today's tech talk. Today, he does have some good qualifications. So that would be one to watch if you want to. Uh...